Uh, it's my pleasure to be back to give you today's sermon again, today's lesson, and uh, to pick up even from where we left off last week. We're in the book of John, the Gospel of John, so you want to get your Bibles out and open up to that. We're in the third chapter, and we're going to start on the 22nd verse. Um, last week, uh, you know, for just to recap a little bit, because this week's sermon is going to pair up pretty good with last week's. Last week was Jesus and Nicodemus, a familiar story, a familiar part of the, of the scriptures. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And, and this whole dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus that you must be born again, and how Nicodemus was so confused by that. How can a person who's born be born again? But Jesus cut right through all of the questions and got right to the true truth. Remember that? We talked about Jesus said, truly, truly, here's the true truth. And we, re we received four really key aspects of that, that, that we learned from listening to the conversation Nicodemus had with Jesus. The first was that by grace, we receive the faith that an understanding that salvation is God's work and there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, but we have to, by faith, accept it from God. Secondly, it means believing that God really does love you. He sent his son. He gave everything he had so that you could be saved. Third is a trust in God that he will remove all condemnation for your sins. That there's no condemnation for those that are found in Christ Jesus. We learned that from the scriptures. And fourth, it's important that we walk in the light. That the true living means living it out in the true light. And that, that there are those who love the darkness, but we are to walk in the light and to shine the light for others. So that was Jesus and Nicodemus. Next week, now I haven't, I don't know what's going to be preached for sure. Josh is tuning up a sermon. Um, it, the, John 4 is about Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And I don't know what the content is, but I do know the general theme is likely around Jesus' living water. And that that living water, that salvation in him is available to all. So we have, you must be born again. You can find eternal salvation through Christ. And so then tucked in between them today, John 3, 22 to 36, is a story about John the Baptist and his disciples. And the, the, probably the famous passage that you find in there is John declaring, John the Baptist declaring, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Well, there's, I found five themes in this passage of scripture. So in a moment, I'm going to read the, the verses to you. I'm going to read the passage of Scripture to you, but keep, try to keep these five themes in mind and see if you can find them as, as they're coming out, as they're being exposed in the Scripture. First is the discipleship. Secondly, there's the theme about competition and jealousy and how that can blind us to the truth. Third is the understanding that real success, real eternal success, success that really matters, depends on the help that we receive from heaven. Fourth, our our posture before Christ and even before the world should be one of humility. And fifth, when we take the right position and we hear from God, our identity becomes secure and therefore then our purpose flows naturally. Discipleship, competition and jealousy, eternal success, humility and identity. The story of John the Baptist and his disciples, I find, is remarkably similar to the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Now you might be thinking, what are you talking about? How can that possibly be? Well, the target audience is different, and, and the setting is different, the characters are different, and even the analogy is different. But the core principles and the primary lesson is the same. 
in essence, what's going on here is we have systems in existence in the world. And Jesus has come to say, you're trying to make it on your own. You're trying to make it by man's rules. And I've got the true truth for you. And John is saying the same thing. So listen, listen to the scriptures. Let me read the, the scriptures to you and then see if you start picking up those themes. And then I'll go into a little bit more detail. And I'm reading today from the message version. It's a much better storytelling version. And, and so I'm going to read the scriptures today from the message. Uh, so here we go. It says this, after this conversation, that is after the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus went on with his disciples into the Judean countryside and relaxed with them there. He was also baptizing. At the same time, John was baptizing over at, the, at Anon near Salim, where the water was abundant. This was before John was thrown into jail. John's disciples got into an argument with the establishment Jews over the nature of baptism. They came to John and they said, Rabbi, you know the one who was with you on the other side of the Jordan? The one you authorized with your witness? Well, he's now competing with us. He's baptizing too and everyone's going to him instead of us. And John answered, it's not possible for a person to succeed. I'm talking about eternal success without heaven's help. You yourselves were there when I made it public that I was not the Messiah, but simply the one sent ahead of him to get things ready. The one who gets the bride is by definition the bridegroom. And the bridegroom's friend, his best man, his best man, that's me. In place at his side, where he can hear every word, is genuinely happy. How could he be jealous? The best man, how could the best man be jealous when he knows that the wedding is finished and the marriage is off to a good start? Verse 29. That's why my cup is running over. This is the assigned moment for him to move into the center while I slip off to the sidelines. The one who comes from above is head and shoulders over the messengers of God. The earthborn is earthbound and speaks earth language. The heavenborn is in a league of his own. He sets out the evidence of what he saw and what he heard in heaven. No one wants to deal with these facts. But anyone who examines this evidence will come to stake his life on it, that God himself is the truth. The one, who sent, the, the one that God sent speaks God's words. And don't think he rations out the spirit in bits and pieces. The father loves the son extravagantly. He turned everything over to him so that he could give it away. A lavish distribution of gifts. That is why whoever accepts and trusts the son gets in on everything. Life complete and forever. And that is also why the person who avoids and distrusts the son is in the dark and doesn't get to see life. All he experiences of God is darkness and an angry darkness at that. So that's the gospel of John and the story of John the Baptist and his disciples. Did you see the themes I was pointing to? And did you see the similarities with Nicodemus? Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about that true truth of being born again, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. And he wrapped his teaching in the allegory of childbirth, new life. Jesus made it clear that all who share this common experience of being born in the flesh, which is all of us, must and can also be born in the spirit in order to be restored to their proper relationship with God. We have to be born of flesh and spirit. 
So John is now speaking with his disciples also about eternal life. And he wraps his teaching up in the allegory of a wedding. Now, most of us, I would dare say almost everybody, maybe over the age of five, has been to a wedding. The older you get, the more likely you are to have participated in many different ways in weddings. It's a really common ceremonial activity and tradition for people, for families, for communities, faith communities, other kinds of communities. All over the world, weddings happen. I wonder if you've ever thought about some of the little aspects and the traditions that make up weddings. Have you ever wondered where all of those things came from? You see, John's giving the wedding as a, as a, as a common understanding, like, okay, think about it. He's the bride and there's the bridegroom. And that immediately takes their mind into a wedding setting. But let's just pause for a second here, just us, and say, what are, what are some of the traditions of our modern weddings at, that we attend and participate in? Have you thought about some of those? Some of those traditions, a lot of them, uh, come from old superstitions. Um, they have to do, a lot of times, they have to do with warding off evil spirits, these superstitions, um, and also doing what is necessary to make sure that both the bride and the groom actually go through with the ceremony. Uh, some of the traditions that, that are like that include the veil. The veil and, and the bridesmaids were actually offered in a way as a form of camouflage. Like, let's confuse the evil spirits. We'll veil the face. And we'll, it was, used to be tradition for the bridesmaids and the bride to all dress alike to make it confusing to the evil spirits. The bride didn't used to carry a bouquet of flowers, but of herbs and, and other things grown in the garden to ward off those spirits because of the healing nature and the preventative nature of, uh, of the, they, they had. The throwing of the rice, and now we blow bubbles, but the throwing of the rice is an old custom that talked about abundance and, and showering them with abundance. Um, there used to be a tradition or a, a superstition around the best man and his role. And it's interesting to hear John talk about, I'm the best man, and I'm here right along with, with the bridegroom. The best man in a lot of traditional superstitious oriented weddings was really more one of to stand in until the moment. And again, to bring confusion to those that want to go on to disrupt it. And there's even an old, old superstition around the father giving away the bride. And that literally like most marriages in ancient times were arranged. And so when we ask that question, who gives this woman? And the father says, her mother and I, or he just says, I do. That was more part of the custom of an arranged marriage. There was a, a, a major reset to our, uh, to our wedding traditions, and it happened back in the year 1840. Now, that doesn't seem, seem like modern, uh, but we've carried on a lot of those traditions to this very day. In the year 1840, I know you're up on your history, and I know you exa you'll re exactly remember what the event I'm going to describe. But the Queen of England, who had been queen for three years turned 20 in the year 1840 and she got married her name was victoria yes in 1840 20 year old queen victoria got married to prince albert and she actually just wanted a plain normal everyday not too big a wedding like most people would have had family and friends but her prime minister who himself had some illusions of grandeur if you will he wanted to make sure it was all full of pomp and circumstance. Let's put on a big show. We need to show the nation, the world, that you're ready to rule, that you're not just a young girl any longer, that you've come into your own. 
And so she acquiesced. She wasn't really that excited about it, but she said she agreed in order to be trusted as the queen. Well, you know, that stroking of her ego started a whole process and uh, she got heavily involved and invested in what that wedding was going to look like. And a major event was hatched. And, and I won't go into all the details, but here's some of the things that we have now that came from Queen Victoria. The first one, maybe the most significant, is that she wore all white. Up until that time, brides wore colorful clothing and they often wore clothing that they could repeat wearing again and again. It wasn't something that was a special dress just for the ceremony. And it was rarely white. White, wearing white in those days was extremely rare because um, it took a lot of effort and therefore a lot of resources to clean white clothing. And so for her to come out decked out completely in white and all of her bridesmaids, by the way, completely in white because they still held that tradition. They were all dressed in white. But the queen also forbid anybody else from dressing in white because she was going to be the center. She was going to be the star of the show. She was going to be undisputed in the grandeur and the jewelry, the veil, the long train, all of that. And it really was like a second coronation. It was even the long grand entrance in the processional down the aisle. And the, this that amazing moment. This is going to be a high royal moment. And we've kind of kept those traditions you know we wait for the bride to enter now instead of the groom we we've, we've kind of kept some of that and so that grand coronation kind of thing you know from that there's, there were other factors there too but from that some real traditional wedding music came the here comes the bride song was uh, part of a, a, a an opera by wagner and uh that was composed in 1850 but it was based in part on here comes the bride all dressed in white being in the back to wealthy uh, brides and, and certainly Queen Victoria. And uh, that was actually a song in that opera that was sung um, not at the wedding, but after the wedding when they were entering the bridal chambers. And then a second song you often hear at the end of weddings, I can't sing it to you, but the bridal march, the wedding march, when there's time when they're going out, was composed in 1857, 17 years after Queen Victoria's wedding, for her daughter, also named Victoria, and her wedding. And so Mendelssohn composed that song. So some of the traditional music that we've, you know, over the years. Now, one last thing, one last little trivia bit for you here, a little, little aspect of some things about wedding. Where do you suppose You May Kiss the Bride came from? Why is that such a featured moment uh, in our weddings? Now, I want you to put your princess bride thinking on with me. You can even put your tall bishop hat if you want on during this thing. But think Think a high holy church service. Think a think high church and and a real ceremonial aspect to it. And a piece of that ceremony being there's going to be an exchange of peace. There's going to be a, a pass the peace. And in many traditional church services, especially at those times, that was done with a kiss. And what would have been done in a traditional wedding during those times, the priest representing God would have kissed the groom. And then at the culmination of the ceremony, there would be that, those famous highly anticipated words where the priest would then say to the groom, now you may kiss the bride. And so there was some trying to weave together that we're, we're woven together with God and we're, this is a high holy moment. And so the 
to establish a kiss. But the other aspect about a kiss, especially from medieval and even earlier times, is a kiss was often the way that an agreement was sealed. We think maybe of a handshake or a contract, but in many cultures, especially in the Middle East, a kiss is a more intimate expression. And so to exchange a kiss means I'm making an agreement with you that I intend to keep. It's an arrangement that's not going to be broken. So there's some trivia for you about, about some of our modern traditions, but they have some purpose behind them. We should be thankful, thankful of, for them and think of them. So let's go back to John for a second. John is listening to and hears his disciples squabbling with this establishment Jews about whether or not their baptisms are an appropriate form of ceremonial cleansing. You see, what, what we had going on with Nicodemus was, Nicodemus represents traditional Judaism. He's from the Sanhedrin, he's from the Pharisees, and he's starting down this process with Jesus of like, you got to help me understand because it doesn't fit with our normal definitions are. John, the Baptist, he represents like the hip kid on the block. He's the new guy. He's got this whole new deal. It's like, hey, you know what? Repentance is good, and we should all be doing it, but instead of doing it the way you're doing it down at the temple, just meet me at the river. We can get it done, and everybody can have repentance and, and cleansing of their sins really quickly. Really, Hey, all the, all the ghoul kits are out for that. Everybody's out checking it out, including the establishment guys, and they're saying, that doesn't work. You can't, you can't actually be cleansed that way. So they're having this squabble, and John's hearing this squabbling about all that kind of thing, and they go right from that squabble to some quibble. I got squabbling and quibbling. He goes right, they go to the, they say, hey, John, you know that guy, they don't even call him Messiah. They don't even refer to him by his name, even though John had. But they say, you know that guy you told us about, the one that you sanctioned, the one that you said, you qualified? He's, he and his guys are over there doing baptisms just like us, and they're cutting in on the action. They're actually getting a bigger crowd than we are. So John, hearing all of this stuff, just like Jesus did with Nicodemus, he doesn't get distracted by all this petty, hey, ours is the best way. How comes you're letting that happen? How comes John, just like Jesus, he cuts right to the heart of the matter. He goes right to the true truth. But he gives this allegory of a wedding, and I think it confused him at first, but then he clarified it out. You see, in that case, in those times, just like in these times, if I say a wedding and I say the bride and the groom, you get images in your mind. You get, you get thoughts about that. And they would have done the same. And the roles of the bride and the bridegroom and the best man, those would have been familiar context to them. Those would have been things that maybe they're not understanding what John's talking about here, but they know at least what that is. So what I would like to do with you next, I think it's instructive for us to know um, a little bit about the wedding traditions of that time and also how it weaves into Bible times, how, how the Bible actually picks up all of those wedding traditions, not just here, but throughout. There were many wedding customs, very, very common in the, in the middle lands there, in, in the time in the lands of Christ. Um, and, you know, many marriages in those times were arranged marriages. You know, Mary and Joseph was an arranged marriage. It wasn't unusual um, that that was really common in all cultures. Um, at the heart of the arrangements was an understanding that having these two people married is going to be a good thing for everybody involved, most especially for the families. Um, 
But there, in all cases, probably there's going to be some people are going to have to make some sacrifices in order for it to be successful. So the wedding customs. What are some of the things that existed then but that uh, also became biblical analogies, biblical context for us? So th there was three major parts to a wedding. Uh, the first major part was a contract, and it would be signed by the parents of the bride and the parents of the bridegroom. And, and the parents of the bridegroom, or sometimes the bridegroom himself, would pay the dowry. They'd pay a, a price, oftentimes referred to as the bride price. Um, and they could pay, be paid either to the parents or to the bride herself. And that property, though, those items sometimes, or those, that amount of wealth, um, would be brought into the marriage, but it would be paid as an act of good faith and a down payment, if you will, or, or a deposit that I intend to keep this commitment and I intend to be faithful to you. And then when you bring that in, it enhances our, our marriage. And, and when that happens, that began what was called the betrothal period. John uh, and, and Mary, the, the parents of Jesus, were betrothed, it says. We would call that the engagement. You know, and sometimes you wonder, how long should we be engaged? Well, long enough to know you're ready is, is really the answer to that. There's no, there's no uh, one specific amount of time. But Joseph and Mary were in the betrothed, promised period of time when it was found out that Mary was pregnant with, with Jesus. You can read that in, in uh, Matthew, the first chapter, and Luke, the second chapter. You can read about that. Common, understood thing. The second step in the marriage process usually occurred about a year later, usually, but not always, not a magic amount, but usually about a year later. And what would happen at that time, there'd be a grand event. The bridegroom, accompanied by his male friends, especially with the best man sort of leading the pack, they would go to the house of the bride at midnight, in the middle of the dark night, and they would create a torchlight parade through the streets. And the bride would know this was going to happen because um, they could hear the trumpet sound that was announcing to the entire community the parade is about to begin. Everybody knows the promise has been made. Everybody knows they've been betrothed. That's known to the entire community. And they're just waiting for the time when they hear the trumpet blow. And then that night they know the party is on. And so the bride, during that whole preparation time, would be in the constant process of making herself ready, not knowing when the trumpet would sound, but knowing she needed to be more and more ready, to be clothed appropriately, to be purified appropriately. And she, along with her chosen maidens, would all join in this big parade, and the parade by, by torchlight at the middle of the night would go through the entire community and would gather people together and would end up at the house of the father of the bridegroom. This custom is sort of at the basis of, if you look at the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, and that, that one is some of them had their oil and they were ready and some of them didn't. But uh, nevertheless, you can reference that. The third phase of the marriage was the marriage supper itself. And, and that could go on for days. And we, you know, the illustration, we already had this a couple of weeks ago, was out of John 2, where the, the uh, wedding at Cana, and uh, the wedding feast is going on, and Jesus turns the water into wine. And, uh, and, and so the, the wedding feast is even better at the end than it was at the beginning. Um, 
But let me also read to you from the Bible about the wedding feast. The Apostle John, uh, also the author of this gospel, received the revelation. And so in the, from the book of Revelation, and we can read this in chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. It's about the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, and his bride, which is the church. So, uh, chapter 19, starting in verse 6, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So that's a portrait out of, out of the Bible, out of Revelation, of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The third phase now, let me tell you this. The first phase was completed on earth when each individual believer placed his or her faith in Christ as Savior. The first phase is being completed. The dowry paid by the bridegroom's father, you might already be ahead of me in imagining this, was the blood of Christ shed on the cross, shed on behalf of the bride herself. The church on earth today is betrothed, promised to Christ. We are the bride. And, and like the wise virgins in the parable, all believers, we should be watching and waiting for the trumpet to sound and for the appearance of the bridegroom to come and to gather up all of his and all who would come. The second phase symbolizes the rapture of the church. The trumpet sounds, Christ comes, and he claims his bride, and he takes his bride back to his father's house. Now, here's the thing. Only God knows the day and the time that he will send his son. Even Jesus has said that himself. Only God knows the day and the time. Matthew 24, 36 says that. The house is the house that Jesus said to his disciples when he said, I have to leave. And they said, take us with you. And he said, where I'm going, you can't come, but I'm preparing a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Jesus is preparing the house just like the bridegroom should in his father's house. He's gone to prepare a proper place. And at the time that the Father declares and the Father designates, when the time is right, when the place is prepared, when the bride is prepared, God himself will sound the trumpet, will, will declare to the angel, sound the trumpet, and the Son will come. The marriage supper is the final and third and final step, and it is the grand celebration. It is the consummation of all of the vows that have already been made. Now, attending this wedding feast will not only be the church as the bride, but others as well. And they're referenced here in this scripture in Revelation 19. The others really include the Old Testament saints, if you will. The ones who have not been resurrected yet, but their souls and their spirits will be in heaven during that time when we're raptured. And the angel said, blessed are those who invited to the supper. So the marriage supper of the Lamb is that celebration of all who are in Christ, including the Old Testament saints, who are faithful and who are true to God as well. So let me, let, me, uh, let me just try to wrap some of this up with some of the things that are important for us to maybe to hang on to. 
John's response to his disciples is so much like Jesus' response to Nicodemus that we all all understand. We think we have it figured out, but we need to keep our focus on Christ. It's important that we don't get trapped by or worked up about all the petty man-made stuff. John's not listening to or entertaining all of their prideful, contentious debates with the traditional Jews. Like, should we sing hymns and have a pipe organ versus should we have electric guitars and, and do rap music. That's not the point. And he's certainly not wrapped up in all the jealousy and competition with Christ the Messiah and his disciples. John's not caught up in that one bit. He cuts right to the point, and the very point is that simple truth that Jesus, of who Jesus is, and it's the true truth, the one we should be pointing to and clinging to. He says, Jesus is our bridegroom. He is at the very center of it all. And believe me, when we come to that wedding feast, Christ will be at the center. The bride will be glorified and will be beautiful in all of her glory, but Christ will be the center of that wedding. Jesus is the one who came down from heaven. John said it. To have real success, you have to have help from heaven. Jesus is the one who came down, and Jesus is the one who initiated the marriage contract. He promised himself to us, and then he asked us to enter into the betrothal period of promise and preparation. And that's where we're at now. He started it all. God has arranged everything. God's made all the arrangements, and he's provided for everything that's needed. He is exceedingly generous, and he provided abundantly for every aspect of the marriage of his son, the lamb, with his bride, the church. God has provided for every single needed thing. Everyone who receives Christ and believes in him for salvation has this eternal life and has it abundantly with God. But we should know this, whoever does not obey the son... John says this in the scriptures. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but will live under the wrath of God forever. And that should cause some concern for us because if we have people in our lives that we know are not in the bride, well, I'd be trying to under, help them understand. Our job isn't to be like John, to be a forerunner. Our job is to be the bride and say, come join the celebration with us. Come be a part of this. Come prepare yourself. John was focused on doing his part and doing it faithfully. He didn't have an ego caught up in whether or not Jesus was doing better or not. In fact, he says, he increases, I decrease. That's a good thing. My joy is complete. John was intimately connected with God and with Jesus. He was the best man. He was in on all the conversations. And it gave him immense joy. He said, my joy is made complete to see Jesus increase. Well, the thing is, his joy is not made complete because he did his part. And he did it so well that Jesus is now getting the recognition. That's not it at all. The groom is at the center of it all of his own merit. Jesus is at the center because of who Jesus is. And if John had done a poor job, Jesus would still be at the center. But John is joyful that he sees Jesus rising. He sees Jesus increasing. So John, like the best man, gets it all put together, paves the way, declares the need to come to Christ, and then as Jesus arrives on the scene, he fades into the sidelight. John kept his, did his part, kept his focus to prepare the way, and also to prepare the people to receive the truth. 
John is full of joy because he sees more people are finding and following Jesus. That should be the source of our joy, that more people are finding Jesus. Not our own happiness, not our own contentment, not the fact that I'm not troubled or worried today, not the fact that I'm healed from my illness, but really that Jesus is finding his acceptance and and love in more and more people's lives. That's the true source of joy. And you know, John was the last Old Testament prophet. And prophetically, John is already giving us a glimpse of the wedding feast when he calls Jesus the bridegroom. He's already prophetically saying, such a marvelous time is coming that you can't even imagine. So Jesus and John, the thing about both of them, they're both completely confident in their identities. They both had intimate relationships with God and they went about doing all that it was commanded of them. Jesus says it over and over, I only do what my Father says to do. They listened and they obeyed. And we learned that lesson a couple weeks ago when we heard the sermon about the wedding at Cana. When Mary told the servants, listen to Jesus, do what he says. And they, they were clearly about that. Jesus and John both, listening and obeying. And they certainly weren't letting any insecurities or jealousy or man-made rules prevent their work or stifle their cause. They weren't saying, oh, I, I should be up uh, preaching. I, why don't they let me run the camera once in a while? How come she's always at the back door? We all have a part to play. We all have a, a position to fill. And our identity in Christ should give us the confidence that whatever part we play is for the benefit of his reputation, not ours. Jesus and John both focused on the true truth. John even says it. He says, God himself is truth. And they made the true truth of God's love so plain that anyone could understand it. And they put it into a context that anyone could understand. And they made it clear that everybody's welcome to accept that truth and to find eternal life. So maybe I'll, like usual, close with a couple questions and a couple challenges for you. The first one is, the first one question I have for you, have you ever been a part of or witnessed an arranged wedding for an arranged marriage? I can't say that I've ever been a part of anything like that, but I now know from the scriptures that I'm going to participate in an arranged marriage. I'm going to be part of the bride of Christ in that glorious day. And so here's what we can do, I think, with this message today. The very beginning of this message, the verses in the very beginning of it, was a scripture that told of how Jesus went with his disciples into the countryside and they spent time together. They relaxed together and they baptized together. And I think this is really the key to this whole thing. It's not understanding our place so much, it's understanding who we should be spending time with. The core of this message is a discipleship core. It's more than the teaching, and it is even more than the ministry, even though he says they went and they baptized, which is ministry. Spending time together is much more important. So my encouragement to you today, my challenge to all of us, spend time with God. Have real conversations with him. Don't just make it your prayer list, gotta go. Don't just make it a thanks for all you've already done, gotta go. Have real conversations. Tell him how your day went. Express your emotions, your frustrations, your worries, your joys, your hopes, your dreams, your discomfort with the politicians, the, the masks that we have to wear. The, talk to him about 
your present conditions? Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you, or are you comfortable? Are you thankful for what you have? Are you challenged and poor? Are you wondering what's going to happen next? Are you hopeful for the next opportunity? And then you know what? Spend time listening to him, to his promises. Read his word and get his promises and then spend time with others. That's the other piece of this. Have real conversations with other people. Share about your days. Express your emotions and your conditions. Remind them of the reasons for your joy and your peace and your hope. Pray that they will have the same by believing in Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Church, I just want to encourage you today. God has given us his word so that we could understand the truth of who Jesus is but also how do we find our contentment and our, and our identity and our place in his purposes. And clearly he's lined it out for us today. So I pray that you will take time to have real life conversations with God and with other people. And I don't mean by texting. I mean with a voice and a presence if you can.